The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Kotz. And I'm Stephanie Sambari, and we are the hosts of That's So Retrograde. Heard of us? For the past 200 and some episodes, we've been trying to figure out what the hell wellness is. We have inspiring and fun conversations with all types of amazing people, from healers to comedians to whatever's in between. We're five years in, but we're just getting started. So hop on board every Thursday to join the party and route to living your best life. And don't forget your cannabis. Or to check us out on Instagram at So Retrograde. That's right. Bye. See you there. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. On today's episode of Looking Up, I'm talking with Dr. Caroline Leaf. She is a communication pathologist and a cognitive neuroscientist. She's been studying the mind-brain connection since the 1980s and has worked with thousands of underprivileged teachers and students in her home country of South Africa. She's also a best-selling author and has a podcast of her own called Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, which is also the name of her newest book. We talk about the difference between our mind and our brain, how we are all experiencing a mental mess, toxic positivity, what it really takes to form new habits and break out of bad ones, what a neurocycle is, and we are totally busting the myth that it takes 21 days to build a habit. P.S. It takes a lot longer than that. Before we start the podcast, the way that I love to jump in is a little section that I like to call looking in. And it's just a series of some brief rapid fire style questions for the guests and myself and the audience to get to know you a little bit better. So without too much thought or judgment, first thing that comes to your mind, is there a book that you have read that has actually changed the way in which you live your life? Lord of the Rings. I can say that with all with all certainty. Well, we are obsessed with it. I've even been to New Zealand and done the tours and it, it just really impacted me. That's so cool. Where are you from originally? South Africa. Born in yes. Zimbabwe. Born in Zimbabwe. Okay. Grew up in South Africa and I have English-Italian parents. So, you know, a funny accent, a cold mixture. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love that. And are you based in LA now or are you on the East Coast or where are you? No, we're actually based in Dallas. Um, and oh, Dallas. We okay. spent yeah, we, we spend a lot of time in LA, um, but we also look moving to up to Seattle because we love the weather and the sea. And yes. like, so, yeah, so we kind of be based between Dallas and, and Seattle. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. If you had to describe yourself in three words as a teenager in your high school years, what would those three words be? Very intense, very serious, and very driven. Okay, I love that. People think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. People think I'm so put together because I'm in mental health and I've been here for 38 years and I do clinical trials and I lecture. And But actually, this is why I wrote my book, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. As any human, we have a mental mess all the time and we need to manage it. We need to manage our mind. When is the last time that you cried? I cried this past weekend. I was just exhausted from a lot of stuff going on. And I realized I hadn't actually given myself any full stops, any time out. And um, it just caught up with me. So I recovered, but I cried a couple of days ago. And was it a nice release? It was. It was 
totally relieving and it's something I, as you know, as a therapist, that's, we encourage people to cry because it's, but you know, I grew up with a British mom, so you hold it all in and you know, if you, mm. you got to hold it together. So it's yes. quite, I feel very guilty when I cry. I have to allow mm. myself to cry. So it's an interesting experience, but it's so relieving. Absolutely. And on the flip side, three things that have brought you joy today without too much thought or judgment. Well, just this, my husband, when he smiles at me, there's just something. 34 years of marriage, and I can still tell you there's a smile. It just like gives, and, and it's like every day he comes and brings me coffee. He wakes up before I do and brings me coffee with a smile. And it just makes my day. It just sets the day in the right mm-hmm. tone, which is so cute. And then also working out with my kids. We do so much together. We were working out together and made lunch together. And it's just a bonding of a family. I know these are such cheesy things, but they just brought me no. tremendous joy. And then my work. I love what I do. I'm obsessed with research and clinical trials and the mind brain stuff. And I was working on some of my clinical trials today and that, you know, that gave me a lot of joy. I love that. Well, welcome to Looking Up. And like I said before, I'm so excited to have you for so many different reasons, partly just because I know that we talk about so many of the same things. And I love that you as well are, is someone that is really interested in mental health on the whole, whether that comes from a holistic perspective or a real evidence-based science perspective and putting it all together and just being real and authentic. And I think we both share a lot of the same sentiments yeah. and notions and and studies that we share. And, and I'm so excited to talk to you about so much. But before that, I would really love to know a little bit of background and your career as a neuroscientist and a mental health and mind expert. And I know also a a communication pathologist. I'm deeply interested in having you share kind of a little bit about all of those titles and all together and and sort of your background and how you got into doing all the stuff that you're doing. Well, thank you so much. It's wonderful to be on your podcast. And I'm likewise so excited to meet you. And as we say, share common interests. It's wonderful to bonded with people out there in the universe that think in the same way and we have a collective interest which is so important. Well I as um, I grew up in South Africa, born in Zimbabwe, I've been living in the States for 12 years. My background is mind-brain research. Um, I, a communication pathologist, um, I did this really weird degree that they don't actually offer anymore but it was a combination of medicine, neuroscience, communication pathology, that was the overarching title. We did psychology as well. We so you've got the whole psychology side. We did the, we've done two years of medicine. It was a very interesting combination of a seven-year degree that they pushed into four years and they made us work seven days a week for like 20 hours a day. It was insane. And this was in South Africa? This was in South Africa. We were okay. part of an experimental group trying to teach... Um, bring in all these aspects of medicine, holistic medicine, um, psychology, neurology, neuroscience, communication, pathology, all that kind of thing. So we were trained to work with people with all kinds of things like traumatic brain injuries, learning disabilities, dementias, autism, trauma victims. And the whole idea was to help us to be able to identify looking at people's behaviors and signals, etc., and then track back to what's happening in their thought life, what's happening in the brain, and then to help them hold heal. And so that involved all kinds of different levels. And so the training was expansive. And I remember when I was doing it, the one thing I thought was that I would advise my kids or anyone else in the world to never do this degree. (laughs) That's so funny. Um, So many people ask me every day I get messages from people saying, do you think I should actually get my doctorate? in clinical psychology or should I just stick with a master's and sort of do, and, and it's like, <laughs> I, there's a lot to say about it, but it, it is a lot 
of years and hours and dissertation. And It's rigor. And that was just the first degree I've done four. And when I was doing it, it was, oh my gosh, how do you even cope with all of this? It's the demand because it's seven year degree in four years. You just don't, right. it's crazy. And the first time that experiment was mixing medicine and psychology and, and neuroscience and so on. And they don't have that degree anymore. They've broken it up into, into three different degrees. But I'm so glad now that I did that because if yeah. I had pursued the original path, which was to just go into medicine, which is what a lot of people did, they transferred from that degree into medicine, I wouldn't have got into the mind like I have. So I've spent 38 years researching mind. And as you know, as a scientist yourself, mind is, the, is considered the hard question in science. And it's kind of philosophized a lot. And we've become so neuro-reductionistic that we work around brain, brain, brain. I tried right. to, from day one, look at mind and brain, how they separate, how they interact, what is mind, what is brain, and what is the influence of mind on brain. And that's been the direction of my research. Started initially with research with traumatic brain injury and then progressed into all kinds of things with trauma and so on. And so it's been a very interesting career with a lot of research and clinical application. For the people listening, can you give us a little short description of what the difference between mind and brain is and where they intersect? and how they work together. Absolutely. So mind is basically, an, it's an energy force. It's not anything weird. We can use quantum physics to explain it, but it's basically if you're alive, your mind is what is keeping you alive. So it's kind of the biggest part of you. Some people may talk about the mind being the spirit and the, or the spirit and the soul. Or, but basically, if you want to have a nice clinical definition, mind, a simple definition of mind is how you think and feel and choose. So those three things go together. And what we see from, neuroscience and quantum physics and, and epigenetics and neuropsychology and all these fields, when you think, you will feel. And when you think and feel, you will choose. So those three never are separated. They, they're a sequential process that will always happen. And what we see from neuroscience is that you are thinking, feeling, and choosing at around about 400 billion actions per second on an unconscious level, 24-7. But we experience that consciously about every 10 seconds. So mind is this energizing force that moves through the brain and then the brain responds. So the brain responds to the mind and the mind uses this response to actually build thoughts into the brain. So with your mind, you think, feel, choose. And when you think, feel, choose, you there's a consequence. And that consequence is thoughts. You actually build thoughts. And thoughts are these physical structures in your brain. And they look like trees. So I've got another little analogy over here, which is a little plant. So thoughts literally look like trees and we the thoughts are made of memories. Like a tree's got lots of branches and roots. Those are the memories. And you have trillions of thoughts in your brain with even more trillions of memories because one thought can have thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of little memory branches. And they're always changing. So your brain is a physical structure that responds to the energy of the mind and it's always changing. That's neuroplasticity as you mm -hmm. know. So for your audience, if anyone doesn't know, neuroplasticity means, neuro means brain, plastic means to change. And the brain is always changing. How? Not by itself, but because of mind. Because once you're dead, your brain doesn't change anymore. But when you're alive, because you're thinking, feeling and choosing in response to the events of life, from the time you open your eyes in the morning till the time you go to sleep, you are processing the events of life into these thought trees in your brain which then become the roots behind what you say and what you do. And they're always changing. So mind management then is managing that process. Does that explain it okay? The difference between mind and brain? Yes, absolutely. And, and I think that that is a really important distinction. What I really want to talk about is I love 
the title of your book, first of all, your book that's coming out. It talks about this idea of mental mess. Yeah. And the reason that I like it so much, and you've kind of already even touched on it when you when you opened, but is this idea that we don't, no one has it all figured out. Exactly. Um, even in, in how you just explained how the mind works and how the brain works, of course it's messy. You know, there's aspects of our brain and the way the the mechanisms are that are so efficient and astonishing and how efficient they are. And it's and it's an amazing, beautiful thing. But at the same time, there's there is this mess. And the reason that I, I really want to talk about that is a lot of people that are listening have obviously heard me speak uh, before about this topic and this topic of my topic, which is optimism and my specialty. But this idea that being optimistic is not about having it figured out and being positive all the time. In fact, that's really something that we delve into and it can be dangerous and it can it's toxic positivity. Mm-hmm. And I know that's something that you as you talk about as well. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk a little bit about this idea of, first of all, how do you describe mental mess? I know that's the title of your book. Yeah. Just in general, what what are you talking about when you say mental mess and what can people expect from your book? Okay. So the reason I chose that title is because I want people to understand that if you're human, you're a mental mess. Most mm-hmm. of the time we are moving between a level of, of mind that we feel like we're sort of in control and when we're out of control. The easiest way to explain this is first of all, think of a number line and think of a zero in the middle. And think of one side going from one to 10 and then one side going from minus one to minus 10. And then think of a little bell curve above that. And the bell curve stretches from the minus four to the zero to the plus four. Now, most of us in any one day are shifting between a minus four and a plus four. So you might wake up and you have a great text from someone and it makes you feel super happy. Then you get up and you get you have an argument with your spouse or your kids just on difficult or something dramatic happens or your boss. So then you drop to a minus four and then their mental mess then may get a little worse. So you might slide down the number line and go to a minus six or a minus seven and you may start having psychotic breaks and find that you're, you're, you have you know, spits in your mind and you start having disassociation and all those scary words, schizophrenia and bipolar and the extreme forms as you move down the number line. Now that doesn't mean that you're mentally ill. And this is where I know you and I talk both talk about this concept. We're in a day and an age where mental mess is seen as an illness. And it's almost mm-hmm. like you have to validate men- mental challenges yeah. with an illness label. And that's yeah. really been for 50 years more or less now. And it's actually created a massive problem in that we're not recognizing people in their context and the story of their life and helping them to manage their way through it. But we actually saying, oh, you're doing crazy stuff. You're crazy. You've got... A Let's dis- put a label on it Let's and put a la- diagnose you. Exactly. And, yes. Exactly. And it's the same as cancer. And call you sick. And call you sick and say it's like cancer or diabetes, which yes. is the standard thing that they say. So I'm trying to level the playing fields and, and help us understand that we all battle with a mental mess. You know, so mm-hmm. this is, these are the realities that we need to face, that, that it, it's not an illness, it's life. I think that what's so important about all of this is that that mental mess, which we all experience is on a continuum. And it's even on a continuum for ourselves in our own life, in our response to our environment and the things that are happening. And also, I think that we really underestimate, and I've been talking about this a lot lately, but we really underestimate our ability to just be in survival. And we are all trying to actively survive. And so sometimes that may look like a threat to ourselves in survival may look like you know, in in our ancestors, like a saber-toothed tiger running at us. But other times it might be complete 
overwhelmness. And, you know, like you just experienced this past week where you weren't sleeping and you were trying to do a million things and be there and be a million things for other people. And then it hits you. Or sometimes it could look like, you know, a loss of a job and a significant change in a financial capacity or mourning the death of someone close to us or extreme fear because we're living in a pandemic. Exactly. Um, or, you know, the the injustices that are happening all around us. And so I think we are all I think this past year of 2020, I've been talking a lot about this, this idea that we really underestimate on an everyday level what we and our bodies and our minds and our souls are constantly doing just to survive. Exactly. And I think we've been thrown at this sense of bumper sticker toxic positivity mm. over the last sort of half decade or, or plus, but especially in the last half decade where some of us that that have real serious mental mess and problems are invalidated because they just don't seem that bad to other people. And I think it's this idea of the continuum for ourselves. And I, I say it so many times, but what needs to be validated is not necessarily... The, the sickness, quote unquote, that people put labels on us, what needs to be validated are just our authentic feelings. Exactly. You know? And it's that exactly that we've got to, and I have a whole chapter in the book where I talk about the current mental health system and which summarizes it basically what you say, you know, similar story to what you've just told everyone. And it's the fact that we, for the last 30 to 50 years, we have focused so much on the brain because of the exciting developments of the brain that we've forgotten about the humanity behind the brain, the humanity around the brain, that the brain is simply there to, to store the memories and the, the, which on the thought trees, et cetera. But as humans, we have a story and we 90%, I mean, the, from my research, which is 38 years of research now, one of my early research programs was to develop a theory of and a construct of mind. And then to, I've spent the last 38 years developing that. And one of the things that I have found from a cross section of fields of research is that mind is the biggest part of us, which is so logical. We, who you are, you are the biggest part of you. Mm-hmm. And if you we can't treat you the same way as we treat your biology, you know. So your story, your narrative, as you say, like we, if we, in a, I mean, my my two son-in-laws are both um, both African American, and that when they when they go out with their spouses to the shops or something, or they're driving in the car and police come up, there's two different experiences that they are having. With my daughter and son will both be like, okay, this is just normal. They don't even respond to the police. And whereas my son-in-laws are actually frightened. You know, so how do we understand that? So that doesn't, and then they, there's an anxiety that develops. That doesn't mean that they have an anxiety illness. It means that they're having a reaction to the circumstances that they're in. So there's a narrative, there's a story. It's unique to each person. And I know you know that, and I know that. And every person instinctively knows that. Mm-hmm. But as soon as anyone's experiencing any kind of mental mess, we immediately put them in the box of like you're going to diagnose you and with a checkbox give you a label and treat it with a drug that works for the heart it works for the immune system it works for anything biologically the biomedical model is superb for the the physical brain and body that's what I'm trying to help people understand as well is that you as a thinking feeling choosing human being are making are thinking feeling and choosing 24-7. 24-7. During the day, you think, feel, and choose to build thoughts in response to the arguments, the texts, the emails, the COVID, the politics, the racism, your story, the adverse circumstances, the bullying, and you building this into your brain. And you mentioned earlier, 
We do things in the moment that we build in for survival. And you talk about optimism in your podcast. The research that I've done plus other scientists show that we have this positivity bias in our mm-hmm. mind and we, have, we are wired for love in our brain. So our mind, which moves through the brain, the mind has a positivity bias. The brain is wired for love. That is a statement made by a Nobel Prize winning mm-hmm. neuroscientist. So that means that we, everything we do is for survival. So if someone is raped as a child or someone is bullied as a child or someone is bullied in a marriage or whatever, they are going to cope in that situation. They're going to, that's, they're going to think, feel, choose. They're going to build a thought to cope in that moment. But that isn't always the best sustainable strategy going forward. But because you may be in a repetitive situation of bullying, that becomes established over time as an automated thought. It becomes a habit over 63 days, nine weeks. And then you every situation that's similar, it triggers that. And then you practice using that. And then you, you build in a response that's toxic, that increases toxicity, that works against the natural wiring for love in the brain. And it creates a mess. It will result in anxiety, depression, frustration, extreme states, et cetera, et cetera. So we have to find that. So part of the whole concept of cleaning up your mental mess is what does cleaning up mean? It means acknowledging this toxicity, embracing the warning signals of depression. What we need to do in the basic principle of cleaning up the mental mess is to recognize where we are on the continuum and to recognize we can't suppress. The suppression will cause more brain damage because the suppression goes counter to our natural instinct of wired for love and survival. We need to actually embrace process and reconceptualize it. I love how you talk about this idea of suppression because something that I've been talking about early on and got, I wrote an article a few years back that got a lot of traction because I guess I was saying something which was wholly based on evidence science that was pretty against what the sort of normative wellness, I say in quotes, culture was all about. And that was okay. I stand really firmly on it because it's something that comes from science and something I truly believe from a clinical standpoint. And that is that blanket statement affirmations, A, do not always work and B, can actually be quite detrimental. Absolutely. I don't know about you guys, but when I'm looking to buying products for my home, I really lean towards products that are sustainable and that have a clean, calming, simple aesthetic. This episode is brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. Everything from coffee to toilet paper and shampoo to pet food, Public Goods is your new everything store, thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. Some of my favorite products from Public Goods that we always have on hand at my house are the all-surface cleaner, the bamboo toothbrushes, and I love the hand soap and the lavender cleansing sanitizing wipes. Rather than buying from a bunch of single product brands, Public Goods members can buy all of the premium essentials in one place with one beautiful streamlined aesthetic. Public Goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly, and innovative products. They ethically source and obsessively develop each of their products to be free of unhealthy ingredients and harmful additives still common on drug and grocery store shelves. They are committed to making their products healthy and safe for humans, animals, and the environment. They use a membership model to keep costs low and pass on even more savings to their customers. Best of all, you can make your first purchase with no obligation. Join hundreds of thousands of others who have switched to their new everything store. We worked out an awesome deal for you guys. 
For Looking Up listeners, you can receive $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They are so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again that they are giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. Plus right now, receive your choice of either a free pack of bamboo straws or reusable food storage wraps with your order. You've got nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash looking up or use the code looking up at checkout. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash looking up to receive $15 off your first order. I love that you talk about this idea of suppression and also of really knowing someone's unique story and everything over, like I would work with a client or, or patient, you know, years back and they may hold a, a core belief of not loving themselves. And they've worked on this core belief out of survival and out of building thoughts from things that they've gone through for 36, 40 plus years. And how can anyone just tell them they can stand in front of a mirror and say, I love myself five That's times right. in the morning and in the night when, it, when it's most susceptible, you know, when they wake up and yeah. before they go to bed and that was going to solve their problems. And, and so on one hand, it's like, it's frustrating. I'm sure it's frustrating for you to as, you know, a science-based person and a clinical-based person, but also just as a healer, exactly. um, it's frustrating because A, that's not really how the brain works, but it's also frustrating because it actually can be the opposite. It could be so detrimental Absolutely. and cause an increase of shame and cause suppression and and so many things that are so dangerous to our own psyches. And, and, and it's well-intentioned, but it just isn't going to cut it. And so I often talk a lot pretty loud about the idea that blanket statement affirmations just are not to be used and and they can be pretty detrimental and you 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 really have to be intentional about the thoughts that you are intentionally attempting to say and having Absolutely. said that I think that it's so important for everyone out there to know that we're talking about this idea of mental mess and we're talking about validating our mental mess, but we're also talking about the fact that it can be cleaned up and it can be changed and you can change your core beliefs, but it takes work. It's not just going to be standing in front of a mirror and saying the exact opposite thing or asking the universe to change it for you overnight. And so I think that's what we're talking about here. And, and partly it's about cleaning it up from the mind perspective, but there is also brain chemistry involved in it where, you know, I, I've said it before, our brains love being right. And so you tell your brain something that's opposite to what it's known to be true and collected evidence about for 40 plus years. And you just say the opposite to it. Your brain's not stupid. <laughs> it's not just going to say, oh, I love myself now. Cool. It's actually going to start thinking, no, that's not true. Here's all the evidence I've collected over the last 40 years, why it's not true and blah, 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 blah. And it's just like driving a car down the highway at 150 miles per hour and, and trying to, to turn around right away. You have to slowly break, make real effort to, to you know put your indicator on, make a small turn. And you can go down that path to having that new core belief, but it's not something that just happens immediately. No, it's absolutely not. In my most recent clinical trials, what I was showing was when you bring in mind management, you actually have that impact that you, you can see how the brain changes. You can see the blood chemistry right down to the DNA. So we looked at, and I, and I talk about in my book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, 
I actually talk about the whole, I put some, a summary of the clinical trial in there with an explanation, lots of graphs and things just to, it's, it's written very simplistically to help people to understand that when I sat there this weekend and I had to deal with the trauma that I had just gone through with our, with our family, with the suicide issue that had happened in our extended family, I applied these principles. My mind was a mess and I had to bring my mind back. Now, in the clinical trials, what I showed is that when you, to, just to relate to everything you've just said and the, the automatic thoughts that we built, people need to recognize that as you think and feel and choose and you generate energy to your brain, your brain responds, but also your body responds. Mm-hmm. So your brain and your body are collectively together, your brain and your body collectively are made of 75 to 100 trillion cells. As you're listening to me now, you are thinking, feeling and choosing in response, which is generating energy through your entire brain and body. All the cells of your brain and body, which is about somewhere between 75 to 100 trillion cells, are responding immediately to what you are thinking now. So right now, as you're responding, as you think, feel, and choose in response to what you're hearing, every cell of your body is responding. So I showed with my most recent research, which, as I said, is summarized in the book, that when you look at the psychology, when you look at the narrative, when you look at the brain response, when you look at the DNA, when you look at the blood, I mean, I looked at so many different levels, we're going to see an immediate change. Your body changes your brain and body and your non-conscious mind, which is the biggest part of your mind, which is the mm-hmm. intelligence, your wisdom, your memories. It's active 24-7. It's not the subconscious. It's the non-conscious. It's mm-hmm. the deepest part of you. That changes before you're consciously aware of the change. Mm-hmm. And so if you are in a toxic state where you are not managing or you're going through a situation where you're just reactive or you're just suppressing a trauma or suppressing a toxic habit and just not dealing with it and operating from that incorrect evidence about self-esteem or whatever it is, to use your example, you actually are affecting the DNA of every cell. So for example, let's start with the DNA and then I'll tell you a bit about the blood and a bit about the brain. In your DNA, if if your DNA, you unwind your DNA, you've got chromosomes, which look like little crosses. So for those of you that don't know what a chromosome looks like, it looks like a little cross. I've crossed my two fingers. I've got red fingernails and the red fingernails would represent what we call telomeres. And telomeres are, um, the current research shows that they are like a proxy for how you're managing your emotional stress. So I've just done in my clinical trials research on the impact of mind, how you use your mind, how you think, feel, and choose on the DNA, on the telomeres specifically. And what we saw was that in a period of nine weeks, you can change how your telomeres function. So if you're very anxious, stressed, depressed, and not recognizing those signals and not managing the trauma, not dealing with the toxic thoughts, trying to push it down, trying to say the affirmation and pretend nothing's there, put a Band-Aid on the wound. If you mm-hmm. do that, you actually shorten your telomeres. And when, you're short, when you shorten your telomeres, your cellular health will suffer. In other words, if your cells suffer, it means every system of your body suffers. So you increase your vulnerability to disease by 35 to 75%. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that you can get sick quicker. You can have more cardiovascular problems and immune problems and brain problems and all that kind of stuff. Also, what we saw in our study was that when people weren't managing their mind, so like this weekend, if I didn't get my mind under control, I would have been shortening my telomeres to the point where I would have created a difference between my actual age and my biological age. Mm -hmm. So what we saw in our studies was that when people don't manage their mind, they don't clean up their mental mess, they don't embrace the pain and 
and go through it. The only way out is through and not, and, and don't see anxiety and depression as something bad, but see them as something helpful. See them as mm-hmm. messengers, as symptoms, warning signals of an underlying cause and get in there and do the driving and do go down the, the roads and, and do the work of healing. And it's painful. Is the treatment effect. It will get worse before it gets better. As you start embracing trauma from the past, it's frightening and you'll feel worse. And you know, that's why we need to learn to deal with the responses in our body and the automatic responses that we built into our brain and find those old coping strategies and pull them out. And, and that's painful. It's like if you have surgery, you can right. cut up before you healed. So what we found was that our subjects that were not managing their mind, that were very aware of their issues and because of the way that we did all the, the testing with the psychologist, psychological testing and narrative testing and brain testing and blood and DNA, they were very aware of their issues, extremely aware, but they didn't have management. So we Mm. saw that their telomeres were shortening and that their biological age was much older than their chronological Mm. age. So we had people that were in their 30s, but with bodies, that's their age, but their bodies were like those of a Mm 60-year-old, a sickly Mm 60-year-old. Now, we found that that at, at the beginning of the research study, the control group didn't get any, didn't get the five-step neurocycle, which is the system I've developed for mind-brain management. So the the people that didn't get the five steps, their biological age um, got worse. So they actually their telomeres got shorter, and their body got older and sicker. The ones that did, they they we had, for example, one subject who's the the gap between their biological and chronological age was up to thirty-five years. By the end of the study, they were back to their, their brain and body had healed so much that their brain and body correlated. So then the, but there wasn't a gap between their biological and chronological age. And that was in nine weeks, mm-hmm. it, it, which is phenomenal because most of the time the research has shown it takes up to five years to create those changes. Mm-hmm. So we showed that with understanding how to regulate thinking, feeling, and choosing, you can then direct how your brain is changing. So you can direct the neuroplasticity of your brain. Neuro means brain, plastic means to change. Mm-hmm. So with cleaning, when I talk about cleaning up your mental mess with the neurocycle, which I'm going to explain now, I am talking about taking a, um, using your mind to train your mind. It's a skill. You can train your mind. Your mind is malleable, as malleable mm-hmm. as your brain is, but you've got this wisdom part of you. So you take this wisdom mind to train the mind that's untrained because we have like an untrained part of us that just reacts and does all these crazy things. But we use our wisdom mind to train our untrained mind to direct the neuroplastic changes in the brain. So it's directed neuroplasticity. So this concept of how we do this, what is the thought, what is the mind, what is directing neuroplasticity, how do you do this, how do you use your mind to change your mind to change your brain, that's what I've spent 38 years researching and Mm -hmm. developing systems and these most recent clinical trials have um, sort of refined that process and the concept is called a neurocycle, neuro meaning brain and Mm -hmm. basically what I'm doing is helping people to cycle through the mind and the brain correctly. It's not a therapy technique, it can be used, it's a vehicle, it's how Anyone, doesn't matter who you are, what age you are, it's the way that you drive your mind to change your brain. So we have therapists all around the world that are using CBT techniques and ACT Mm -hmm. and and psychotherapeutic techniques. It doesn't matter what technique inside the system, because this system is not a technique per se, as I said, it is something that anyone can use. I've taught children as young as three to use the system to be able to manage your mind. So it's, it's, it's a very simple process, but it's based on profound research. And it's it's the essential principles are you embrace, you process, and you reconceptualize. So those are the basic principles. And then there's five steps involved in doing that. 
the five steps come from what do you do to force those changes in your brain? So I want to come back to your example where you spoke about how if you just stand in front of the mirror and you say your five in the morning, five positive affirmations in the morning and five in the evening, miraculously your self-esteem will not be healed. <laughs> I mean, well, miraculously- Sorry, guys. Yeah, it's not going to work. And that is, <laughs> that, is, that is because it takes at least 63 days of you actually facing why is your self-esteem an issue? I love that you're saying- 63 days because in all of the research that I have done and actually just read through over the years, I thought it was so interesting that every single person, even colleagues that I deeply admire and respect say, or still sort of succumb to this weird, non-scientific statement that it takes 21 days to build a new habit, which actually is based on absolutely nothing. Well, actually, it's based on a misunderstanding by uh, a myth by this plastic surgeon who was wanting to get into psychology. I love that you know that. But what I found was that all the research out there said, of course, there's no magical number, but on average, it took or it takes around 66 days to build a new habit, but of course it's different for everyone. And it takes around 63 days to kind of dismantle a bad habit. Now, obviously this is three days we're talking about, like not a big thing. We're just saying that on average it's in the 60s, but the 21 thing needs to be completely chucked and dispelled. And anytime I like walk through a bookstore now, even with- Exactly. Well, I told you, well, (laughs) that's why I've done the research I've done because there's very little research out there. It is a myth. I actually talk about it in in the book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. I talk about where the myth of 21 days comes from. Yes. I have it on the back of my card deck. (laughs) People ask me all the time why I have a 33-day challenge And it's because it was based on that number 66 and the first half sort of being the most difficult. But it talks about the idea that it is not 20. There's no 20. I'm sure if you do something for 21 days, it's not bad for you. It'll it'll be good for you if you want to do something. I can explain that. So what I did with the research is that there isn't research on it. I've searched everywhere. There's just been one or two studies and I quote Mm -hmm. them in my my book. Um, So I decided to do the research on it. So I've done actual clinical trials that are scientific, that have been statistically verified, incredibly powerful. We're busy writing up the publications at the moment to show that how it actually works. So essentially what happens is that it takes around about nine weeks, which is Mm -hmm. more or less 63 days for sustainable change to happen. So in the, most people give up around day four. So what happens is that you've got key days and at each of those is certain major changes happen in the brain. So what we, what it takes, it takes 21 days to actually just to identify the toxic thoughts. If you've got a self-esteem issue, Issue, that's your warning signal, but the self-esteem issue is going to lead to a physical warning signal. It's going to lead to various behaviors, which are the branches of the tree, which leads to a certain perspective, which then leads you to the origin story, which is the root. So the five steps of the neurocycle and the concept of neurocycling, you do very intensively for 21 days to pull up mm-hmm. the actual thought from the warning signals, from I've got no self-esteem down to why do so I have- So is that the embrace portion? So that's, well, no, the embrace process and reconceptualize is what you do over the five steps. So embrace, process, and reconceptualize is what you're doing daily with the five steps in a progressive format to around about day 21, 22, 23, in that region, somewhere around Mm -hmm. the three-week point. And that enables you to find the basic the basic problem, the, the behaviors, 
from the the self-esteem warning signal, emotional and physical warning signals to the behaviors, to the perspective, to the root. Until you know the origin, you're going to have the tree. So standing in front of the mirror is the tree still there. You have to take the tree and get it out and you have to get the roots up to it and you have to regrow it. You have to de-root it. You have to de-root it and you have to regrow it. Right. And plant a new tree. Exactly. And as exactly. And it takes at least three weeks to do that. Yeah. Then that's where most, a lot of people also give up because you can feel, wow, I've got this, but you haven't. It's like, when you plant a new plant, if you don't keep watering it, right. it's going to die. So then the next 42 days, you have to daily at least seven times a day. So there's a lot of deliberate intentional. It doesn't take you long. It takes you seven to 10 seconds, but that seven to 10 seconds a day, seven times a day at least, will then keep it in your conscious mind. So you use your conscious mind to keep pouring water on this thing. Whatever you think about the most will grow. And then around about day 42, we see another gamma peak. And then day 63, we see another gamma peak, but the gamma peak now starts shifting and we start getting a stabilization between the two sides of the brain, which means that now this is a sustainable memory. It's so interesting because one aspect could be the lazy part, but it also could be in addition, just all of us as a society, this product of being fed that it only takes 21 days. And it sounds good because who wants to think that it takes, you know, when I talk about 66 days or 63 days, whatever it is, people, you see them get sort of like, that doesn't sound doable, but it is doable. They want the fast track. They want the magic pill. We live in a quick fix society. And that's something I speak about in the book as well, is that we live in an age now, after these last 30 to 50 years, we've lived in an age where we've become so fixed on the technological aspect, on the on the physical, that we've forgotten about the, the humanity, yes. the mind side. Yes. And that's actually led, if you have a look at the population statistics, people are now dying 15 to 35 years younger than they did Dec- for decades, we've been living longer, but the, the trend reversed between 1999 and 2014. Mm-hmm. And now we are in a trend where we're living shorter lifespans, sicker mm-hmm. lifespans, but with advances in medicine and technology. And they're tracking it back to mind management. They're tracking it mm-hmm. back to an uptick of anxiety and well, that's and not managing it and not right. managing how we, because if you don't manage your mind, everything else in your life will be a mess. You're not going to eat correctly. You're not going to exercise. Right. You're not going to, you're just going to stand in front of the mirror and slap on a quick fix thing, thinking that the affirmations are going to help. Right. <laughs> that affirmation will never work until you found the root cause. And it's going to take you at least nine weeks. And it's a very precise process. You can put any te- techniques into that, but there's a very mm-hmm. definite process that you go through. You know, and that's what we've got to emphasize. And even talk about time. Like people don't want to do 63 days, but when you really think about a core belief that might be toxic or traumatic, some of them have been working on that core belief for 60 plus years. Exactly. Exactly. So I think to yeah. really be realistic about it and authentic about it, that's part of it. Like it may sound like a lot, 63 days, but in the grand scheme of things, it's very it's little nothing. compared to how long you've been spending on the, on surviving it's nothing. in the way that you have. In your opinion, in the research you've done, is there a difference between the amount of time it takes to dismantle a toxic habit and the difference between actually starting a positive habit that has nothing to do with dismantling one, like starting something new that might be a habit that is there, is there a difference? No, same time frame. So in the book, what I've done in the second half is I've taken the neurocycle, which is the five steps and shown you how to use it for trauma. So for example, big trauma, big T trauma, small T trauma, acute trauma, um, then also detoxing bad habits and building new habits and then also brain building and learning. So in other words, as you are, if you want to now 
start something new, like build a new habit. You, you're also going to have to spend the 63 days, but you're not breaking something down. You're actually mm-hmm. building something up. So it mm-hmm. basically would fall under brain building, but it's the same time frame because you've got to grow the tree and you've got to plant the seed, grow the roots, grow the tree, and then you've got to strengthen the tree. So you first have to build the concept and then you have to stabilize the concept. The building of the concept, the new habit, the new thought is going mm-hmm. to take around three weeks. That's when mm-hmm. people, that, that three weeks is correct for building, but then it's, mm-hmm. it sinks into your non-conscious and it doesn't have enough energy to impact behavior change until you've given it energy. How do you give right. it energy? By practicing using that new habit seven times a day. And there's ways that you do it. I've got all the examples in yes. my book over the next 42 days. And then you can, you can train in a new good habit. Before we have to end up, can you briefly just list out what the five steps are? I know, it, I know that it, it will take a lot more to understand the concepts and hopefully everyone listening will be buying your book and really diving more deeper into them. But if there is a brief sort of way to mention what those five steps are. Absolutely. Well, um, the first step is to gather awareness. So it's to become aware. So by gathering awareness, you're embracing and saying, okay, I don't like feeling this depression, but it's a messenger. What is the telling what is this physical warning signal? What is this emotional? So the first step is to gather awareness of it. There is so much amazing research out there right now on on stress. And there's there's really, in the first episode of Looking Up on the first season, we had a stress expert out of Stanford come on and we talked all about this idea of what if we could actually see stress as our friend? And for me, I was like, oh, it's so interesting. It's It's very similar to when you're hungry, you feel those pangs in your stomach and that's telling you I need to eat something. And stress, what if you saw it as just a, an indicator that there's something that you need to do, whether it's exactly. you need more resources, you need help, you need to stop, you need to slow down, whatever it is, asking like, what is, what is my stress telling me and listening to it? And so I think that's a similar concept to what you're saying, which is so interesting. So the first step is the gathering awareness. Yes. The second step is reflect is reflect. Deep reflection where you start looking at the why, the ask, answer, discuss, Mm -hmm. the why I have those behaviors. Why do I have those signals? What is my perspective? So you're going, you're you're diving into the non-conscious mind through the subconscious mind. So consciously, you're listening to the signals from the non-conscious mind. The non-conscious mind is wired for love. It's wired for positivity. So it's sending this, this is causing a disruption of energy in the brain and in in the mind. The mind then sends a message, these little messages through the sub Conscious. So the subconscious is the bridge between the non-conscious and the conscious mind. And it is at, and the non-conscious will send these little spurts. So when you get this thing of, oh, I'm on edge, oh, something's not right, oh, there's something that's whatever, that is your non-conscious mind telling you. Like when I did an if only situation or when I had the situation this weekend, my subconscious mind, when I tuned into it, I tuned into my non-conscious mind and I started getting the signal of I'm feeling very anxious and on edge because I'm exhausted from all this trauma and I haven't had time to process. So in other words, when you listen to the message from the non-conscious mind through reflection, which is the second step, you start finding the reason behind. You start digging deeper. And then once you've started digging deeper, it's very important to capture and what you've what you've um, what you've reflected on that's the third step, which is writing. We all know the million reasons behind writing. There's a million neuroscience reasons. One of the main reasons, though, is it takes you even deeper into the unconscious mind where your wisdom is. When deep down inside of all of us, we know how much we can handle. We've got a lot of the basic answers, a lot of the logic, but it's our and, intuition, our intuition, etc. But it's very blocked by toxicity. Mm-hmm. So writing really helps to get that mental chaos out. And I've developed a technique for writing that really 
really helps you dig and forces the left and the right side of the brain to work together and dig deeper. And it's called the metacog. So it's a way of writing that really helps you to get deep and to find that mental chaos, get your brain on paper. And then the fourth step is once you've written, you literally vomit on the page, is mm-hmm. to check, recheck, is to go back and, and make sense. What are the patterns? What are the triggers? What is this telling me? Digging down deeper, what is the origin story? And then the last step is an act of reach, which is a little action that anchors you back in a mental space. That's where you could use at that point, maybe some sort of a positive statement, but it's got to grow out of the recheck. Now you do those five steps every day for 15 to 45 minutes. And I have an app that goes with the book, also called the NeuroCycle app, that goes with the book that actually walks you through. So I walk you through this process in the book, but also in the app if people want audio driven as well. And you to, for detoxing trauma, detoxing toxic habits, um, building a new habit, et cetera, you spend around 15 to, 30, 15 to 45 minutes a day, which is not a lot. And then you stop. As you and I both know, you can't stay in your trauma all day long. Mm-hmm. And then you basically, the next day you pick up and you do the five steps again. The next day, and as you go through today, 21, day 63, you're doing it daily. Day 42 to 63 is very easy. You don't have to do all five steps as rigorously. You go from spending seven to 45 minutes a day to just a few seconds a day. I think that's so interesting. And it kind of makes me think about you drive to work every day, or we used to. And at some point you're like, you don't even remember how you got there. And it's you, your brain acting on auto and, and you don't remember the drive. But it's and a so, thought that you've actually right, built. Right, it's a thought that you've actually An built. Intelligent and so one. in this example of, of everything you're saying, maybe the day 40 two to the 62 or 60, whatever that is, that, that last part that becomes easier is because you've now built this thought exactly. that you built, built this, this shortcut and this efficiency exactly. in the brain that it doesn't need as much energy um, to, to continue to do because you've already built the foundation and it's there. Totally correct, but it actually does need more energy. So what you've done with from day 22 to 40 to 63, you've added energy and you've changed its ability to move through the, the non-conscious. But it's become easier. Yes, the because, it, because, it's have, it's yes. Got, because it's got the right energy. So you yes. don't feel the physical energy, but it's yes. got enough energy. Otherwise, it's too weak to get out right. of the non-conscious into the conscious. Yes. So when you get in a car and drive, you're pulling up an existing memory that's very intelligent of how to drive. And you're adding, right. you're adding more branches as you drive today because it's another experience. Right. So, and then it's got straight stronger. Well, I have absolutely loved this conversation. So on par with everything that I think, breathe, eat, sleep, and I'm passionate about. So we probably could have talked about this for another hour. Oh yes, um, absolutely. And maybe we will. Yes, definitely. (laughs) um, To end up the Looking Up podcast, I ask all of my guests to pull a card from my very own optimism deck of cards. Things are looking up, but since we can't be together because of these times, we have to reinvent and I pull the card for you. I just pulled one out of random. Um, And so this podcast guesting experience comes with some homework. So this is your homework for today. (laughs) Here's your card. Lovely. Uh, Okay. Give yourself a dose of reality. Even the happiest life has ups and downs. It's just the way you navigate through them that is of your concern and in your control. Think about something that has been a struggle and think of something that has made you so happy. A happy life is multidimensional and includes your joys and struggles. Your life is a happy life. Love it. That's beautiful. Totally agree with that. And so on, so actually makes sense with our whole conversation. It does. Thank you so much for having the insight that you have and for letting me get excited about what I believe in and what I've shown works and seen with millions of people. And so I'm excited to share. So thank you. 
I have a feeling we're going to be um, talking and collaborating a lot more. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for being with me. And I can't wait to be on yours so soon. I can't wait either. Thank you so much. So good meeting you. Thank you so much. You too. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info on how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.co. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Our theme music is Me and Shaw Day by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.